So from time to time throughout this summer message series, this um, spiritual cinema, when the pickings are kind of slim in the theaters, I'm going to go back and take something off a DVD from this past year. And I did this past week with, uh, with the movie Seven Pounds. And um, I got to tell you, I didn't quite know what to expect in this movie. I heard there was a twist, and there was a twist. And if you haven't seen it, sorry, I'm going to share all those twists with you in just a few minutes. It's all right. It's not, we're not talking like uh, the Sixth Sense kind of twist here. It's not that good. As I thought and I prayed and I wrote about this movie, I want to show you first what came to mind. It's, of course, a crucifixion scene. 2,000 years of Christian history, Jesus' passion, his death, been rendered so many, so many different ways. It also brought to mind... This. So you know that picture? It's one of a series of monks who self-immolated in the early 1960s in South Vietnam. It actually was not to press so much, um, protest so much the war, but it was the oppressive policies of the Diem regime who were oppressing the Buddhist majority in the country. Now the reason these came to mind is this is that these two images have been variously rendered and understood as a kind of violence directed against the self, offered as retribution or as protest or a sacrifice. But actually, there's a deeper question beyond that as well, too. Can violence restore wholeness? When things are broken, can violence restore Wholeness. And the reason why I was actually very vexed by this movie, by Seven Pounds, is that its answer is yes. That in a way, violence can restore wholeness when life is broken. I disagree with that. And so I think actually that this movie offers the world a set of very damaging and damaged ideas, dressed up in a kind of Hollywood ending but also with the sheen of religious sacrifice, that somehow the main character sacrifice is meaningful. Now, the movie starts out an interesting enough way. It grabs your attention. Will Smith's character, Ben, the first voice we hear is his. It says, it took God seven days to create the world, and it took me seven seconds to destroy my own. And the first time that we see him on the screen, he is calling in, his own suicide. The movie jumps back and forth throughout various timelines, and eventually we learn the backstory of what has happened and why he has set himself up to die. What has happened is that he is responsible through an act, a single small act of inattention, a car crash that killed seven people, including his wife. And the movie gets part of its name from the fact that he is looking for seven people to bless, to share something with. We don't know what that something is right at the outset. It's a mystery. But we eventually learn that what he is going to share with them is his very life. He is going to give his life in pieces so that some others might live. Now, posing as an IRS agent, what he does is he tries to vet out these seven worthy people 
Not just really a financial audit, although that's how he presents himself, but really what he's trying to do is a moral, spiritual inventory of these people to see if they are worthy of the sacrifice that he is going to make. But the question that the movie never really gets to, is he worthy of giving the sacrifice in the first place? Not just are they, the beneficiaries, worthy, but is he worthy of giving the sacrifice? Is his sacrifice, as it turns out, noble, or is it awful? My verdict is that it is awful, and I will tell you why. The seven pounds, it's never quite clear on why the movie is called that. It could be the weight of his own collective organs that we see piece by piece that he is harvesting to give away to these seven people that he has identified. Or it could be, even on a deeper level, from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, this idea of the pound of flesh that one gives off as recompense, as retribution when something has been done wrong. And so he is literally slicing himself up. Actually, one reviewer, I said, this would be a much better movie if it were done really as one of those super creepy Japanese horror movies that are so popular right now. Would have been a much better movie. It really would have. I actually agree with that. There's one thing, let me tell you, that I did love about the movie, and it's this, is that it jumps back and forth in time, especially towards the beginning of the movie. And the way that you can tell that the movie is jumping back and forth is what Blackberries looked like five or ten years ago. That's the way you can tell. They're jumping back and forth. It's a nice little technique. And one thing, one positive impression it did give me, and I think should give all of us, we are distracted in our very busy lives and we are thinking, perhaps tempted to multitask while we are driving. Please, please, please never text while you are behind the wheel of a car. This is how the whole thing gets set in motion. So actually... The movie, finally, valuable in the fact that it's a nice public service announcement. Not in its spirituality or in its theology. Because the deeper message that it offers is very, very harmful. Like an orthodox interpretation, a dogmatic interpretation of what the crucifixion meant. You all know, some of you grew up in these traditions. Jesus died for what? Jesus died for your sins, our sins, all of ours, as the orthodox interpretation of that event is. It is that we are so degraded, we are so lowly as human beings, so worthy of punishment that one had to take our place and suffer all of what we rightfully would have deserved. But i got to tell you, especially if maybe you grew up in a tradition that's the only way you understood the crucifixion or the death of Jesus, is that that's not just all that Christianity says about what that event was about. About a thousand years ago, a man declared a heretic as Unitarianism and Universalism were eventually declared heresies within the Christian church. Peter Abelard, one of the great minds of medieval Christianity, said it this way. And think about this particularly in the week before Father's Day. He found this idea of what's called vicarious atonement, that Jesus should have to stand in our place and suffer because we are all so bad that we need to suffer this as well. He said, who will forgive God the sin of killing his son? Very different interpretation of the crucifixion. Our tradition, our Unitarian Universalist tradition, which evolved out of and still maintains part of connection to that very progressive Christian tradition, said and understands 
that Jesus was really killed because the authorities feared him. They feared him because all authorities whose power is inadequate and not grounded in something deep and real, they always fear those who do not fear death. Because those are the kinds of people who can be destabilizing in a society that is based and built upon fear. Our tradition has said, instead of the fact that it was good that Jesus died, our Unitarian Universalist tradition has flipped that. Jesus died because he was good. And he believed in and practiced a kind of love that can change the way we relate to each other. So there's different ways to interpret that image of the crucifixion, just as there are different ways to interpret that image of that monk who self-immolated. It perhaps could be that that particular monk who we saw was so beyond ego, so beyond fear, that he was willing to give his life as a sacrifice to make a point about the oppression of his people. Or it could be that he was a young man so beyond any kind of hope that the only thing he had left was shock value. Now, just a few years ago, actually, on one of the major highways, I think it's the Eisenhower or the MacArthur, one of those ones that rings Chicago, there was an artist named Malachi Richter who immolated himself in protests of the Iraq War. Now, listen to the words, the last message that he left before he died. If one death can atone for anything in any small way to say to the world, I apologize for what we have done to you. I am ashamed for the mayhem and turmoil caused by my country. He thinks that his death can somehow balance out the scales. That can atone for all kinds of other deaths. And this is really the question at the heart and I use that pun intentionally, if you've seen the movie, and we'll get to a little bit more in a second. This is the question at the heart of seven pounds. What do we really believe as human beings? What do we really hang our hearts and our heads and our hope upon when we fall out of balance and out of alignment with love and grace and beauty and all the things that create the depth in life? Is it love or is it punishment that can lead us back towards life? That helps us restore a sense of connection when we have lost our way? Well, I cast my vote with the great Thomas Merton. The Cistercian monk who bridged East and West into a kind of new, deeper, and also ancient mysticism. He said very simply, punishment cannot cure us of the feeling of our unworthiness. Punishment cannot cure us of the feeling of our unworthiness. Now, this is different than talking about justice. Justice says we seek to break the chain of violence through the understanding of who is responsible. But punishment wants to continue and perpetuate the chain of violence through vengeance. And too much of religious history has bought into what a UU and also United Methodist minister, Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker, talks about as the damaging myth of redemptive Violence. Redemptive violence says that violence in and of itself can be a sacred thing that can restore balance and harmony 
to the universe. Now, I talk about violence today not as a pacifist. I am not a pacifist. I believe that violence can restrain the harmful, perhaps enough, to provide space for something good and beneficial to come about. But what redemptive violence says is this, that violence can be a sacred act. It can be the will of the universe, the will of God. Whereas I think we can say with deeper hearts that violence is on some level always an admission of failure, not the source of victory. Perhaps the most damaging articulation of this idea of the myth of redemptive violence came out just a few years ago. Did any of you actually see Mel Gibson's The Passion? Okay. It's more than I'd expect, to be honest with you. I felt called to have to see it because I wanted to interpret it to other people who I was saying, don't spend your money. It is awful. It is just a body being flayed and torn. There's nothing holy in that. And in fact, one of my deepest, dearest friends who has a very wonderful, rich Christian faith, his first comments when he got out of the theater after seeing the Passion, quoting the scripture, says, they have taken my Jesus and I do not know where he has placed him. Mel Gibson has misunderstood what that crucifixion meant. It is a very, in some ways, twisted romantic notion of paying the quote-unquote ultimate sacrifice. If you ever read any romantic poetry, Keats or Shelley, or even just read the myth of James Dean, this idea of living fast and dying young, that somehow this is the way to leave your mark on the world. But these are all the destructive myths of redemptive violence. Now, maybe redemptive violence has a point. I don't think so. But I think it fares poorly, not just as a thought about the nature of violence itself, but it fails empirically. Because think about it. If a wounded world could become less wounded by the act of wounding, wouldn't we all be a lot better right now? <laughs> wouldn't things be so much better with all the violence in our world? Empirically, we see that the myth of redemptive violence is a lie. If violence could indeed restore wholeness, we all would have been healed a long time ago. Have you ever known anyone have you ever known anyone who was violated? Have you ever known anyone who was the victim of violence or close to someone who was the victim of violence? Or maybe some of that this morning, that's you. Think about what that is like. The trust is sucked out of life. Communities or individuals that suffer violence over and over and over again, eventually they become numb places. It is difficult for life to grow there. Depression, nightmares, terrors, all kinds of afflictions come upon people who have been the objects of violence. Now, one response to this can be desensitization. That eventually we forget or we will ourselves no longer to feel. Now, just add a little joke to this difficult stuff. It's like that line from The Simpsons when Bart and Lisa sneak into a movie that's above their ages. They shouldn't be there. 
and Lisa's barely watching through her fingers, and Bart says, if you don't watch the violence, Lisa, there's no way you'll ever get desensitized to it. (laughs) That is one of the ways out. Stop listening to your heart. Stop listening to your spirit, the part of us that says to be violated, to be the object of violence, or to commit acts of violence is a violation of life at its deepest level. Part of the ways out, and I've met many, many people like this over the years, people who have been the objects of violence, they hide away, they anesthetize themselves, they hide in drugs or alcohol or other destructive behaviors. I forget who it was, Roman thinker who said to get rid of the pain of being a man, he made of himself a beast. This is part of what that Roman philosopher meant, that we dull our spirits because the pain of being alive is too much. Now, it's interesting. One of the ways that people have started to realize folks who have been the objects of horrendous violence actually can heal and heal back into life is not, although this is a part of it, but not just primarily through talk therapy, through sort of reasoning it out, thinking about it, working it through, but it's fascinating. Art therapy has been found to be one of the most productive ways that people heal from trauma. And I think it is because in arts, we affirm our part of this creation and we become creative again. We see that for what has ever been destroyed, we can link back into this creation and we can be parts of this beauty and we can make this beauty and we can partake of this beauty. Now, Ben, Will Smith's character in the movie in Seven Pounds, This is not his choice. He chooses destruction of himself over creation. And in this way, he doesn't have to take responsibility for what he did. He doesn't have to live with the responsibility of it. And living with it is the key of what he did. And that's the place where the movie gets its final, last, dramatic act. This is the part that is the most annoyingly Hollywood of the entire script. Of course, he falls in love with a woman who is supposed to get his heart. And it's not just that, of course, he has to fall in love with this woman. He actually gets to fall in love with Rosario Dawson, you know. (laughs) She is living with congestive heart failure. And the movie almost wants to go to the place of, if you've ever read the old short story, the old O. Henry short story, The Gift of the Magi, really, really beautiful story. It wants to get there, but it's not there. It's about a poor couple who each gives each other as a gift what they perceive the other wanting the most by selling the object, their own object, that will complete the gift that is given to them. It's very ironic, and it's a sad story. But their love is mutual. It is an expression of mutual care and devotion to each other. But in seven pounds, the care is not mutual. So Ben makes the decision, I suppose, that if he gives her his heart, he cannot give her his love, his love. And if he gives her his love, he cannot give her his heart. And so he hides all this from her. And one of the things that the movie is also very, very superficial about is that he has a brother who loves him deeply, who has received one of his kidneys, of Ben's kidneys. And after giving him that gift of life, Ben cuts him off. And this poor other best friend character who appears to be some kind of lawyer who Ben has asked to do the awful, awful task 
of arranging for taking care of his organs after Ben is gone. Ben has cut himself off from life. And he has given the woman who he says or we think that he loves no chance to response. No chance of saying, I don't want you to do this. There is no mutuality in this story. Instead, he chooses oblivion. He has taken life through inattention, and he will finally take his own life through inattention to the people around him. And so, towards the end, he dies, his sacrifice is quote-unquote complete. And the last scene in the movie rings really, really hollow. It is Woody Harrelson who has gotten his eyes, and Rosario Dawson who has gotten his heart, and they embrace, somehow magically reincarnating Ben back into life. I got to tell you, if I knew if I was one of those people, yeah, I'd be glad I had a heart and I'd be glad that I had corneas again, but I'd be feeling really, really ick about how I got them, about the fact that they were an act of violence, not redemptive, committed against the self. And so let me tell you about how I would have rewritten the end of this movie. This is the godlike power that comes with preaching. Rosario Dawson's character finds out what Will Smith's character is up to. And she says, I will not let you do this. She says, if you do this, I won't accept your heart. I will not accept your heart and it will go to waste. And instead they stay together. And day after day after day, he cares for her. He goes to the hospital when maybe there's another potential donor. And they live in that vulnerability of hope. That maybe, maybe not, she will get the donor through the more traditional roots. They have to live in that painful yet beautiful reality that Ben has to know that giving your heart to another person assures us of risk and can mean loss. Basically, he wouldn't be able to take the easy way out. He would have to care for another human being. He would have to sacrifice something, but it would be his comfort, not his life. He wouldn't be in control just as he was not in control in that driver's seat when he was the one who brought the accident about in the first place. He would not be the one who chooses his own end. Instead, he would be called to be a witness to another person's end. See, because violence, the idea of redemptive violence, it is about the idolatry of cheap decisions and easy sacrifices. It is the illusion that decisive, quick, strong action, even if it causes harm to some other people, that that's the way we can move forward, that that's the way we can get beyond the burden of shame or guilt. It is a lie to think that breaking something again will repair the original damage. And ultimately, this is what really, really got me why I did not like this movie. Ultimately, when he's going to make the final sacrifice and he has cleared the decks, and it's clear that he's going to give away his heart, the way that he kills himself says it is not about love. It is about one final act of punishing himself for what he has done wrong. 
He lowers himself into an ice bath so his organs will stay preserved. And in that ice bath is a deadly stinging jellyfish. And as we see him writhing back and forth, we know this is not about life. This is about him saying, you son of a bitch, you did this awful thing, you got to go out suffering. Where there is not love, there cannot be real sacrifice. And there is no love in this story. Now, is real, life-affirming sacrifice possible? Of course it is. Mohandas Gandhi, Dr. King, these are people who gave their lives. But this is the difference. They did not seek death. They loved life more than they feared death. And in fact, those of you around last fall when I did the message series on the last lecture, came up with this little, uh, this little mathematical formula that we're going to see in a second here. Actually, I'm not much of a math whiz, so I came up with this conceptually, and then a friend of mine who's a neuroscience, he put it together for me. But it's this, and I think it actually does work out as a kind of mathematical formula. And what it shows is that our fear of death is inversely proportional to our love of life. Our fear of death is inversely proportional to our love of life. Dr. King, Gandhi, countless, countless others who perhaps we know close to our hearts loved life in such a way that they were willing to have something or someone that was worthy of giving their lives for or risking their lives for. Now, all of us, we will be called in one way or another to do this in smaller ways. I think of a story from Rabbi David Wolpe, who is a rabbi in Los Angeles. And he himself is a cancer survivor, and in his ministry there in Los Angeles, he serves a very, very large reform congregation. And he tells a story once that he was sitting with an elderly man in his congregation who was dying, had terminal cancer. And they were talking, both had people who had lived with cancer, of their fears and their hopes and their sorrow and their sadness. And what the rabbi said to him is recognize, even now at the end of your life, you still have lessons that you can give. Your children, your grandchildren, the people who love you, they are all watching you. They are all watching you right now. You are not done teaching, even if your life is about to run out. That is a sacrifice of love, not of despair. The problem with the movie Seven Pounds is that it seeks symmetry in what is basically an asymmetrical universe. The world is abundant, but very often it is not balanced. The rain falls on the just and the unjust yet, but sometimes it pours on some people and it barely trickles on others. Ben's death, he thinks that somehow it will balance the scales of the universe. But it won't. Yes, some people will live through it or for it. But he will offer to the world another model of someone who through violence has tried to restore the balance. And I don't believe that he does. 
The universe is filled with tragedy. And it is filled with grace and joy. And one does not cancel the other out. They do not cancel each other out. As if we can get to the end of our days and say our balanced ledger is clear. It just is. And tragedy is real. And joy and love and grace are real. I want to close with one final story. About six months ago, eight months ago, I was watching ESPN. I was watching SportsCenter, as I do far too many times a day. And i got to tell you, seven pounds drew absolutely not a single tear. I didn't well up at any moment to this movie. But as I was watching SportsCenter this night, I bawled my eyes out. It wasn't because the Yankees lost. The reason is that because they featured in a very long-form story an absolutely beautiful tale of a young man with the world before him. A prime athlete at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who one day after he had played a lacrosse game, was walking down the street. And a car swerved and hit him, and he was killed instantaneously. He had designated that his organs would be shared beyond his death. And they were harvested. Eyes, heart, kidneys, liver. Now what this story follows up on is that every year on the anniversary of his death, with his parents who have suffered the most grievous loss that a parent can suffer, they gather and have a reunion with everyone who received his organs. The gift of life is shared. They never would have asked, of course, for their young and beloved son to die. But that just is. And there was nothing they could do about it. All they could accept and all they can recognize is that because unintentionally this horrible thing happened, but because this young man was intentioned enough, other people now have life. It is love only that makes sacrifice worthy. There is tragedy and there is grace in life. The balances don't always balance and the debt is not always squared. But still there is hope and still there is love and still there is abundance. And still, still, all of us in ways very large and in ways sometimes imperceptibly small, we can make of our lives a loving sacrifice. And in that way, we will grow, and so can others as well. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God who does not weigh the scales but invites us into wholeness. May we recognize that the gift of our lives is ultimately ourselves. 
that we might offer and offer and offer, but if there is not love in these things, there is nothing in what we are giving. But if there is love in the offering, and the majesty, and the beauty, and the joy and the grace of what we give, these things then are abundant. May all of us live in this way. Amen.